What exactly is enough? How much is enough money in the bank? What is enough when it comes to your annual income? And how many trips is enough to take per year? For many of us, the definition of enough is intangible. And unfortunately, in what once have may felt like more than enough, that definition starts to expand over time. Maybe it's an internal goalpost of achievement that we move on ourselves, or perhaps it's just the nature of society telling us to want, do, and achieve more. No matter your age or profession, we can all fall prey to the false belief that the amount of money you earn is just never enough. In this episode, we're joined by financial well-being guru and author, Manisha Takor. Manisha has a wealth of experience in the financial sector. She's a Harvard Business School graduate, a chartered financial analyst, a certified financial planner, and has spent over 25 years working in the financial services industry. From institutional investing, where she helped grow her specific division to over $6 billion in assets under management, to advising individuals on their wealth plan. Despite achieving financial well-being herself, Manisha woke up and realized all that she had sacrificed in the name of work and money. Today, she shares really candid stories on how she overcame toxic behaviors around work, money, and prestige, and how that really impacted her health and personal relationships. She gives us also some really powerful language to reframe the way we look at our money. And one of my favorite ways that she does this is she reframes the difference of how we look at money problems versus money worries. And she provides a powerful connection between financial health and emotional wealth, which she refers to as money zen. I hope you enjoy Manisha as much as I did. She's amazing. And I can't wait to know what you think of this episode. Enjoy. Money problems have tactical solutions. My credit score is in the crapper. How do I raise it? I am drowning in student loan debt. Those problems have mathematical, tactical, logistical answers. I'm not saying they're fun or easy to do, but those are the kind of answers. I'm embarrassed to say this, but I literally viewed my self-worth as my net worth. And so my money worry was, or my worth as a human is defined by my net worth. And if my net worth is going down, I'm less of a human. I'm worthless, literally worthless and worthless. You have to pay your dues. Nobody just wakes up and has a money fairy that sprinkles $100 bills on their head. If you want more money in your life, unless you come from inherited wealth, you need to get off your tushy and go out and work more. And when you are starting out, you will earn less because you have fewer skills. And as you continue to invest in your skills and your network and your craft, over time, you will start earning more money. Okay, Manisha, welcome. And I want to give a little bit of background about Manisha. Manisha, you have 25 plus years in the financial services space where you helped grow your division to over $6 billion in assets under management. Not to mention you're a Harvard Business School graduate and a certified financial planner, now author. So you kind of know what you're talking about. But one of the things that I love way more than all of those very impressive credentials, which I was sharing with you when we started, was 
you are so raw in your book. And that's the purpose of this podcast is storytelling. And it's telling other people's stories so we can learn about them. And so I want to just open up with really the dedication in your book, which says, this is dedicated for all of those who have struggled with feelings of never enough. So tell me about the cults of never enough that you refer to. I think about it as this internal feeling that no matter how much money you earn, how many accomplishments you achieve, how much praise you receive, it feels like it's never enough. And in, even more importantly, you feel like you're never enough. Another way to think about it is to flip it on its head and say another signal that you're trapped in the cult of never enough the way I was is that you've bought into society's subtle but strong messaging that the answer to anything that ails us is more, do more, earn more, be more. And if as a result, either of those mindsets has led you to beliefs or behaviors that are reducing the quality of your life, I would call that being a card-carrying member of the cult of never enough. Side note, I took your quiz and I am in that category. So I think I probably need to listen to whatever you say. And so, I mean, I think obviously you experienced that and you talk about many experiences of living in that cult of never enough. And I also heard you on an interview where you had stated you actually received financial independence, but you also weren't living at the same time. And you talked about, you know, very early on in your chapter, you, as you say, destroyed, you know, many aspects of your life in terms of relationships and other elements. Can you kind of talk about and bring us back to that period where you kind of had that, I don't want to call it a breakdown, but maybe realization around what you were doing for the sake of money and the ever seeking of enough. Yeah, Erin, it was absolutely a breakdown. It was like a face plant breakdown on the floor in the fetal ball. Like, what the F have I done with my life kind of, of experience? Essentially, when I turned 50, I got very sick and I had to take a medical leave of absence. And I was able to stay awake about five or six hours a day. My immune system was just attacking my body after years of my engine running hot nonstop. And I realized that I had spent the entirety of my adult life as a human doing and not a human being. And I looked back at some of the trade-offs that I had made. And I thought, dear God, is this the kind of human being that I, I want to be? And, and just to give you two examples, when my grandmother passed away, I, I did not go to her funeral because in my mind, I was thinking, well, Grand knew I loved her and I've got some important business meetings, which I can't remember what they were. And what difference does it make if I'm there? And it never occurred to me that there's an act of honoring those that pass on, but also being there for my mom, my aunt, all the other people in my family who are grieving. Never thought about it. Another example, I'm divorced. 
if I were my ex-husband, I would, I would have divorced me too. Once he had a very severe motorcycle accident and he was up, he's an off-road motorcyclist and he was taken to a 16 bed hospital where they had to do emergency surgery to save his leg. And he called me to tell me he was going into the surgery. I remember this very clearly. I was staying at the Four Seasons in San Francisco again, doing very important meetings that I can't remember what they were. And he made it out of surgery, was successful. And I didn't show up for a couple of days. Again, my thinking was, well, there's nothing I can do. He's in pain. Um, He's being taken care of. And so I just put work in front of everything and it destroyed my health and my relationships. And I would also say my soul, my character as a human being, I turned into a person that I'm not proud of. Mm. I think a lot more people struggle with that than we know about. I mean, maybe it's, it's common knowledge that a lot of people struggle with this, especially with some of the stats that you share in your book. But so all of those moments happen, but when was your transformation? Was it an instant transformation or has it been a slow, progressive, non-linear transformation? Oh, I so wish it had been like a light switch moment. I, I would say the aha came for me when I was in prospective client meeting. I had just returned to work after this uh, medical leave of absence. And my team and I, we were talking to a prospective client who was very private about her personal assets and was interviewing us. But part of our value proposition was going very deep with clients, really understanding their money story, their money history, their money journey, their money worries. And I wanted her to experience that. So I had the team interview me based on my financials. And I'd run the numbers on myself a bajillion times, but there was something about articulating my story, you know, graduating from college, borrowing $2,000 from my parents for first and last month's rent in New York, paying them back in six months, and every other dollar I had, I had earned myself. And then in talking about my, my life, realizing as we were going through this, that I had achieved an incredibly strong level of financial health, which I, which I knew intellectually, but seeing it in the context of the questions around why, what, for what is this money, I realized I was literally emotionally bankrupt. And I wanted to understand how, how did I get to this place? Because my original intentions we're good. I believe that money gives women voices and choices. I'm not a fancy person. I mean, I drive an 11 year old uh, Mini Cooper. You know, I'm I'm sitting here talking to you with my flannels and a 550 square foot cabin in Maine. The the wealth that I've accumulated, I'm not using to do wild and crazy things for. And so I stopped, and it just hit me in my tracks. Like, what am I doing? Why is this never enough? And it turned out, as I did the research, that it was never enough for a variety of reasons that I had never expected. And what do you think those reasons were? For me, I identified four broad buckets of factors that can drive any of us to having a never enough mindset. And I, I want to caveat when I say any of us, 
if we think about the bell curve of earnings, there are about a third of us who are not making a living wage. And it's horrific. I won't even get started on that. That's a whole nother book that I need to write. These comments are addressed at the two-thirds of individuals that are earning at least a living wage. And the, the things that lead us into the cult of never enough are small t traumas, cultural norms, societal influences, and even our own evolutionary biology. And each of those factors ways in different measurements in different people's lives. And they're important to understand all four, which is why I spend almost two thirds of the book talking about them because the way out of a never enough mindset is going through. But in my case, one of the most, by far and away, the strongest factor for me was something that in retrospect, I feel very embarrassed about. When I was in fourth to sixth grade, I was very much bullied. I was chubby. And also I'm of half Indian descent. And as Indian women head into puberty, oftentimes they grow light facial hair on their upper lip, which in India is no big deal because they thread it and moms know what to do with it. But I had an American mom and we were living in a small town in Indiana. And so kids called me cow butt and thunder thighs and mustache mouth. And I felt so rejected during those that three-year period and ostracized. No one invited me to slumber parties or sleepovers, and there was no spin the bottle for me. And so I found solace in my academics and praise from teachers. And as I moved into the workplace, what replaces academics and you know teachers, it's money and progressing in your career. And so the behaviors that soothe that deep wound of feeling utterly rejected by my peers that was helpful back then became a runaway trait as I grew into adulthood. And I didn't even really realize I had that festering wound still under there. And one last thing I'll say, because I know this is a very long answer, is in researching the book, I talked to a number of executive coaches. And I asked them how many of their really successful clients do they think are driven in part, or if not in large part, by this kind of small T trauma. And the answers range from 75% to 100%. And almost uniformly, the cause of the small T traumas were things that, again, as an adult looking back, you think, how can I still be driven by that? But we are. It's so crazy that moments that, you know, may seem super small and could be, you know, how many times that happened, who knows, who can quantify how many times you were bullied, but that shows up and also impacts your life and, and contributes to some of the choices you made in relationships and work. It's just wild how those things can affect us. Now, I think I, I love that you do go in depth into all of those four things in the book. And I do think people should read the book to kind of see where they fall. Because there's a couple things that you mentioned within what you were just sharing that I wanna wanna ask a couple questions on. You mentioned people earning a livable wage. Yeah. It, in your, do you have a quantifiable number of what is a livable livable wage today? Because I I'm sure that question probably came up for someone listening. Yeah, it's 
different if you live on one of the coasts versus in Indiana, where I grew up. I define it as earning enough money that you are able to meet your basic needs without having to put those payments on credit cards. And, you know, for some, it can vary dramatically. I, I've met people for whom $35,000, $30,000, depending on where they live, they're able to live debt-free, make the rent, make their car payment. Um, And then I've met people in New York who are like, are you on crack? Like, you know, even at $60,000, I feel like I can barely keep it all together. Rent's eaten half my take-home pay. So it's a fairly wide range and it's very geographically dependent. And that's for a person who does not have kids. Yeah. Yeah. That's a whole other, other animal. You also talked about you were lacking what you refer to as emotional health. And your equation in the book around money zen is financial health plus emotional wealth, which I thought was interesting that you shifted emotional health versus wealth, or I'm sorry, emotional wealth versus emotional health. So tell me about that equation and why you chose the wording around that to kind of help us measure that. This dovetails beautifully into the, the, the previous question you asked me about what's, what's a living wage. There's a study, probably it came out about a decade ago at this point, but it was very widely quoted and is still quoted widely in the media. And it says that $75,000 is the maximum amount of money that someone needs to earn in order to feel just completely happy about their finances. And any money that they earn above and beyond $75,000 will not increase their happiness. And there was a lot of pushback against that number. Again, it depends. Do you have kids? Do you not have kids? Where do you live? Etc. But this past year, the research was revisited by the same researchers and also a group from Penn, uh, Princeton Penn co-study. And what they discovered was, ooh, actually we were wrong, but we weren't wrong that that kind of maximum number that you need to hit in order to have bliss and joy is 75,000 in income. What we were wrong in is there is a number and it's different for all of us above which more money will not make us happy unless it comes on a layer of emotional uh, wealth or what they call well-being and what I call emotional wealth. And if you are lacking emotional wealth, financial health above and beyond meeting your minimum core needs has diminishing returns. And, you know, my example, you know, I I kept excruciatingly detailed budgets from 1992 onwards. And I can tell you that the things that brought me the greatest amount of joy were things that maybe I'd spend $100 in a month on. And so it wasn't, you know, like I needed huge sums of, of money to find joy but I was not making any room in my life to engage in those activities. 
Mm. So there's something else I want to talk on because also when we talk about the livable wage, I think that ties into your distinction of knowing the difference between money problems and money worries. And money problems, obviously, it is a problem if you can't feed your children because you're not making a livable wage, right? There is a problem with that. Money worries are very different. So can you kind of explain in your your vision behind each of those? Money problems have tactical solutions. My credit score is in the crapper. How do I raise it? I am drowning in student loan debt. How will I ever be able to afford a home? How much home can I afford? Those problems have mathematical, tactical, logistical answers. I'm not saying they're fun or easy to do, but those are the kind of answers. Money worries are things like, the most common one I hear from women of all income levels. Whether you're making $30,000, $300,000, or $1.3 million, I'm, it's shocking how uniform this is, which is I'm going to die old, alone, poor. I'm going to be the proverbial bad lady under the bridge. That is a money worry. It's a visceral feeling that is solved through intellectual and emotional exploration and knowledge. And in my case, my money worry, I had two. One was the proverbial because I'm divorced and I don't have kids and I'm now 53. So I don't see them in my future is I'm going to die all alone. Mm. Um, And I do worry about that. And but the thing that really was toxic for me that I brought into this book was that my money worry, I'm embarrassed to say this, but I literally viewed my self-worth as my net worth. And so my money worry was, I am not worthy as a human being, or, or my worth as a human is defined by my net worth. And if my net worth is going down, I'm less of a human, I'm worthless, literally worth less and worthless. And so that's a sense of the difference between the two and how, you know, some examples of how it's played out in my, my personal experience. And I love in your book, because you've written other books besides Money's End, which we're really pulling from that body of work. And, and you really do talk through a lot of solutions on the money problems, because many people might listening. And I think that's actually quite comforting, right? Knowing that something is a problem is like, okay, that's fine. I can understand it's a problem. Now, what actions do I need to do, whether short, medium, or long-term to start to kind of turn that problem around? But money worries are much more psychological and they're much more like woven within us and they're hard to unpack. I can totally relate to both of those. Some of those worries that are not really, not always suited in reality, right? You know, maybe, maybe there's like, sure, that could happen. You could, you know, I've even said that too. What if I end up on the street? Sometimes I actually find that comforting to actually go through worst case scenario because it's like, then, you know, whatever, I get a job at Starbucks or something like that, right? But let's go back to emotional wealth. To me, I mean, I didn't know you in your previous days, but you seem to radiate and you seem to be very happy. And you're on this interview. I don't know if anyone can see, but you're in your cabin in Maine. You know, you have a small place in Maine that you go to six months a year. 
you seem happy. How did you start to increase your emotional wealth? Because your financial health was clearly fine. A couple things. One thing I want to emphasize is that almost no one is taught about personal finance. And we have no nationwide curriculum. The vast majority of people that I meet, even some of my colleagues from Harvard Business School who went into operations or marketing or strategy, don't understand the basics of budgeting, investing, knowing how much home or car or vacation they truly can afford. And so I co-wrote with a girlfriend of mine from business school, two financial primers. One is called On My Own Two Feet. And the idea is to give individuals 80% of the information that they need to know to solve money problems. Mm -hmm. The other one is called Get Financially Naked, uh, How to Talk Money with Your Honey, because we discovered that once a romantic element entered your life, so too often do other financial problems. There are some other books I like to recommend that I didn't write. If you're struggling with debt, The Total Money Makeover by Dave Ramsey and or Pay It Down by Gene Chatsky are two phenomenal resources for dealing with drowning in debt, which is super common. Mm. Another book that I like to recommend is When She Earns More, in case you are finding yourself to be the primary or co-breadwinner in your household, which increasingly is happening to women. And that's written by a woman named Farnoosh Tarabi. And then the other book I'd like to recommend is by Bobby Rebel, and it's called How to Be a Financial Grown-Up. And those, I would argue, are wonderful textbooks, but they're fun to read and they're not long to help you solve the financial problems or get on the path or have clarity around what you need to do because financial problems don't get solved overnight. Yeah. Then you have the bandwidth to shift over to emotional wealth. I'm really glad you said that. And I'm really glad you gave tactical resources on that because I was going to come back to that. Obviously, starting with your journey, you have financial freedom. The vast majority of people in this country, in the world, do not have financial freedom. So you know, it's hard to really think about if you can't meet your basic needs, you know, and a livable wage, you know, that's really interesting because now I'm Mm -hmm. pondering and I want to find more research on that because, you know, I'm sure, you know, people that make 300,000 that are living totally paycheck to paycheck, right? Then there's people that are making $75,000 a year and they're just fine. So, you know, there's an element within that layer too of needs versus wants, right? And I think a lot of time people get confused on what's financial needs and it's what are these nice to haves, which I think is probably a different conversation. But let me just jump in and say these hands down, the best book on that subject is called Your Money or Your Life Mm -hmm. by Vicki Robin. And it came out in 1992, which is the year I graduated from college. And I read it and it changed my entire thinking about how to think about money. Then, unfortunately, I, I fell off the bandwagon. Um, she just put out the second edition in 2018, and I cannot recommend the book strongly enough for people who are trying to identify 
the difference between wants and needs. And we all should have some wants and fulfill yeah. those. But there is oftentimes what can happen is what we think are our needs grow exponentially and crowd out the ability for us to experience wants. And Your Money or Your Life is, to me, the absolute best book I've read on how to think through those issues. So sorry to interrupt. I just had to no, put that good. out there. It's good. I love that book. I've read it twice, and I think it's a fantastic resource. And so you know, just to boil down, you gave a ton of recommendations if somebody's falling in that category of, hey, I got to figure out my financial health. So what I just heard from you is if someone is struggling with with money problems and lack of financial health, the first step I just heard from you was really just get educated. Is that kind of your first piece of advice would be? It is. And the second piece is don't beat yourself up because nobody taught you this stuff. No mm -hmm. one. And the financial landscape today is geometrically more complex than it was, say, when my parents were heading into their adult years and starting families and trying to figure it out. I mean, there weren't credit cards. You you only had one option of a mortgage. It was a 30-year fixed and the bank really made sure that you could afford it because they kept that mortgage on their books. And so the complexity of what we have to choose from financially without a guidebook or any help is what causes so many of us to develop money problems. And I would say probably 90% of people in this country are struggling with and that may be too low. It might be 95% are struggling with money problems. Yeah. Many of which who have quote unquote high income. Right. But they're also struggling. I'm just repeating myself, but it is shocking how many of us did not receive any education. Yeah. I mean, I shared with you this stat, you know, in our, in our school curriculum, we found over 70, I think it's 74% of students, which is kind of maybe to be expected, right? You know, if you're looking at the age of 18 to 24, received no financial education. But then we also took that survey back to active professionals, obviously within our current industry, which is the beauty and wellness sector. And that number hardly changed. I think it went down to 69% had zero financial education. And so, and I love that you use the example of your 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 peers, excuse me, at, at business school, many of them didn't even learn it, you know? And so it's, it's not to be, it's not to be ashamed about, it's just the reality. You know, and I love that you said, don't beat yourself up because that totally hinders any capability yeah. or any possibility of progress. So in your case, you sacrificed your emotional wealth for financial health. And so for many people, it might be, you know, another direction. But so let's go back to, you know, what allowed you to experience greater emotional health, emotional wealth. God, I keep getting them mixed up. No, well, um, my emotional health and wealth were both in the toilet. So <laughs> to thing, yeah. you know, in the beginning, Aaron, it was really hard. Um, I would try and think, well, what do I like to do? And I had become so obsessed with work. Even when I wasn't working, it was constantly on my mind. And as my career progressed in the early days, I really did work extremely long hours, seven days a week. But as I'm morphing into my 50s, I'm not working those kind of hours, but I'm still thinking about, I'm not 
disconnecting from work. It's constantly in my head. And as a result, I had lost a number of, well, pretty much all my friends. I mean, literally at one holiday season, as I'm in the process of writing this book, I realized that the only people who sent me holiday cards were my immediate family and people I paid money to for various, you know, different services in my life. Everyone else had dropped me because I wasn't there for them when they needed me. And so trying to figure out what does emotional wealth look like when you don't have hobbies, friends, it wasn't easy. So what I started with was something that some people may have heard of. Julia Cameron uh, is a wonderful- The artist way? Yes, I started with the artist way. I started with morning pages and the dates with yourself and doing my 20 minute weekly walk with no music or podcast in my ears and just slowly tried to reawaken my senses to figure out what I used to like, remember some of that from my childhood and what I might like now. And I would say it took me about two years and I'm still figuring it out. But the fact that I am allotting time and resources and investing and figuring out what constitutes emotional wealth for me is why I think I now look like I'm glowing. And I certainly didn't prior to this. And I can give examples. Some of those things for me happen to be reading books or I'm a huge junkie of royal UK family gossip. So sitting in a coffee house for a couple hours and um, reading through those kinds of things or journaling. I love to do yoga. I love spending time with my little nephews and niece and spending time with my parents who are now in their early 80s and spending time out kayaking and paddleboarding. And if you had asked me about any of those things three years ago, I would have told you, are you on crack? I don't have time for any of that. And why would I do that? Oh, man. <laughs> Gotta I earn can... more because my yeah. self-worth is tied to my net worth. I can relate to that so much. And I, you know, I feel very blessed. And I think it's the beautiful thing about these podcasts and books and, you know, the information economy that we live in right now is you can take and learn from this, you know, I mean, that's very sad to me that you say that you lost friends like that. And, you know, but you see, you're, you're just speaking to it as it's the reality, right? And so I'm, you know, I want to ask one question on that. But it just reminded me because I think in my 20s, I very much followed and I'm just turned early 30s right now. And in my 20s, I totally fell in that trap. I was obsessed with work. I totally sacrificed relationships, health, mental health for sure around work. And granted, it was growing a small company. And so, you know, which is another question around, you know, sometimes you do have to sacrifice to get to get someplace that you want to go. But I remember it was one of my friends told me she was like, she said something at that time, best friends since, you know, early childhood. And she said, you're becoming very one dimensional. And I was like about work because I was obsessed. And that that saying, I'm so glad she said it, but I was, I was like, what do you mean? It's, it's cool to be obsessed with work. I mean, that's what life is about, right? It's about making a living and 
you know, getting to where you want to go. But I was like, wow, that's really, really, it struck a chord with me for sure. And so, by the way, that is something to really be proud of that you have achieved, you know, financial health, as you call it. But I noticed because I've researched you on the internet and seen everything that you're doing, you're definitely still working. You know, it's not like you're sitting on the Mm -hmm. beach reading a book and chilling. And obviously it's because you're clearly passionate about it, but I don't like to talk about regrets. But when you look back at, you know, what you did in your work, like, obviously I believe that it had a reason for this because of the body work that you pushed out right now. But do you, do you actively have regrets about focusing on work as long as you did at the expense of other areas? Or do you see it as part of your trajectory and path? I do not regret focusing on work. I deeply regret not learning how to disengage from Mm -hmm. work. If Mm -hmm. I look back, I think I not only could have accomplished the same body of work that I have, but probably more if I had what academics call positive work engagement, which is the ability to work intensely when you work and then to completely disconnect when you're not working. And it doesn't mean that you are being a sloth and lying on your sofa. But literally, if you do four or five hours of real intense work a day, five days a week, you will be amazed at what you can accomplish. Now, I say that as somebody who you know is in charge of my own business life. Right. It's not always easy when you have um, you're earning money by the hour or you're part of a team where you end up getting work on your plate that you think is ridiculous, but you have to do. But my point is disconnecting from work mentally so that you can refresh, have empty space in your head for creative ideas to bump up, likely will propel your work performance and certainly will give you time to invest in your emotional wealth. And so that's what I regret is that I did not understand how valuable disconnecting from work on a very, on a daily basis is. Mm. So interesting. Thank you for that. I wanted to talk a little bit about the mental health aspect and money because, you know, it ties around that concept of emotional, maybe more emotional health than wealth, but you were, you were pretty public about how, you know, at least on what I found on you on the internet, that you've had struggles with depression, anxiety, and you're also bipolar too, which I don't exactly know what that means, but you, can you talk about how you think, you know, in your experience, obviously it showed up in a very specific way for you, but I do know a lot of the conversations I've had with our students and with people that we work with really struggle with some mental health aspects. And I, I actually interviewed earlier on this a podcast, a financial therapist, which you probably know is becoming, it's a newer field of like 12 years old, but it's becoming more of a legitimate practice and therapy. And so I want to hear a little bit about your mental health struggles, whatever you're willing to share. And then also your experience and also the individuals that you counseled. And if you see those show up or integrate together at all. So there are two types of mental health struggles, situational and chemical. And I've experienced them both. With regards to being bipolar two, there's bipolar one and bipolar two. 
bipolar two used to be called manic depressive, where you mm-hmm. alternate between periods of extreme productivity and activity. Sometimes it's self-harming. Many people, it's extreme sexual promiscuity or gambling. In my case, it was extreme workaholism. Mm. And then you swing to the other side and you have deep periods of profound depression. And that's chemical. And it can be treated with medicines. I take three different types of medicines every day for my bipolar. I take an antipsychotic, I take an SSRI, and I take a benzodiazepine, which in plain English is pretty darn strong psychological pill, plus depression medicine, plus anxiety medicine. I was not diagnosed as bipolar until I was 45. Up until then, I just was swimming in these up and down emotions. And I just thought that was how life was. And working in financial services, my behavior was actually called being a good employee. You know, when I was in my manic modes, I was like the best employee because I get on the plane at 9 p.m. from a business trip, head to the office, work till two, go home, shower, be back at my desk before, you know, the stock market opened up. And I do that until I crash into a wall. So there are a number of people who struggle with chemical mental health issues. Mm. And it takes on average, for example, if you have, if you're further out on the spectrum where, where I am with bipolar and even further with bipolar one or schizophrenia, it takes on average seven to nine years to get properly diagnosed and on the right combinations and doses of meds to see those symptoms dissipate to the point that you can manage your chemical mental health issues with more holistic adjuncts to your medicine, sleep, exercise, nutrition, connection to yourself, to a broader community, to a higher power, however you think about that. And people don't talk about this. And that's why I'm very public about being bipolar too and not having been diagnosed until I was 45. The second kind is situational and you can have both. And I've had both. Situational depression and anxiety can be brought upon from a very wide range of circumstances. And because modern life is so fast, there's so much coming at us all the time that it's when we do, we have an epidemic of loneliness, depression, and anxiety in our culture. And those are situational. There's a wonderful book called Lost Connections by a man named Johan Hari, H-A-R-I. And he was feeling incredibly depressed, anxious, and lonely and wanted to explore whether it was chemical, situational, or both. And if you are struggling with these issues, that's a wonderful book to to start with. Mm -hmm. But I also just want to say, anecdotally, 
six, seven out of 10 people I meet are struggling with depression or anxiety. And of that group, probably 80% of them, it's situational and 20% it's chemical. I've never heard it framed like that. I think that's, you know, the way that you frame stuff, even just money problems versus money worries, framing is really, really powerful and words really matter. And so I've just never heard that in relation to, in relationship to mental health. I found that I needed a different lexicon and language Mm. to talk about it because mental health has such stigma attached to it. And so people don't seek help, or if they do seek help, they may seek the wrong kind of help. If you have a deeply rooted chemical issue, no amount of top therapy is going to help you. And if you have a situationally induced deep bout of anxiety and depression, no amount of pills is going to make that go away. Cognitive behavioral therapy or talk therapy or a variety of different modalities will help you. And if you have both, then you need all the different kinds of of treatments. But I found being able to talk about it more crisply Mm. has helped people more easily identify which path they may be on so that they can get the right kind of help. Absolutely. Absolutely. So Something that we see really specifically, you know, a lot of times, at least in the the industry that we're in, which I know many of our, on the business side of things, we work with many owners and leaders, and they are really, really struggling. And it's an absolute epidemic of lack of talent and lack of workers who want to work a 40-hour work week. They want to work very, very part-time, and yet they also want to make more money. And so I think, you know, you also say in your book, achieving less is the path, path to lasting success. But that's, you know, to be blunt, you have achieved quite a bit in your life. So that's a very different different narrative for someone who may may not be even achieving what they are fully capable of achieving if they maybe did work a little bit more or if they, you know, there there is a reality of the effort that has to put in before you can kind of enjoy fruits of labor. So do you believe there's a place for achieving? and building. So you can then objectively come to the point where you say, okay, I've achieved enough, or maybe I'm comfortable kind of stepping back a little bit and, you know, maybe working less hours in a day and things like that. I look at it as two layers. First of all, you have to pay your dues. Nobody just wakes up and has a money fairy that sprinkles hundred dollar bills on their head. If you want more money in your life, unless you come from inherited wealth, you need to get off your tushy and go out and work more. And when you are starting out, you will earn less because you have fewer skills. And as you continue to invest in your skills and your network and your craft, over time, you will start earning more money. And so the absence of trying to achieve will hurt you and completely impair your ability to act on the equation financial health plus emotional wealth equals money zen. And we are seeing a shocking amount of 
I would call disconnection between expectation and reality of workers typically in their 20s and 30s. I've not seen it so much in their 40s and 50s. Life spits in your eyes pretty heavily a couple of times at least by the time you get into yeah. those decades and you realize uh, that you do got to work it. When I talk about achieving less, what I'm talking about is the volume of different types of things that you are trying to cram into your life. If you want to be a top-notch esthetician, you're going to have to work a lot early on, especially when your wages are low. If on top of that, you're trying to become an Instagram influencer and own rental property on the side and be someone who gets to go out every night and have expensive cocktails and vacation to all of these wonderful places, well, you're not going to be able to achieve all of that, even though societal influences tell us we can. And so achieve less in your early days means be tactical about where you're spending your time and your money. And then as you move on, what often happens is when you work hard, as you need to in your 20s and 30s to get off the ground, you can get to a point in your 40s and 50s where you're shifting seasons and you don't need to work at that level of intensity. Yeah, You need to do what I missed, which was mentally disconnecting. Yeah. And driving to or giving yourself permission to achieve less. And just to give you an example, the guy who sat in the row in front of me in Harvard Business School on our first year, you have assigned seats and you sit in the same seat um, all year. The teachers rotate in and out. Well, he's now the CEO of Amazon. And when that was announced, I cannot tell you, I felt like I had a scarlet L on my head. Like what... What a loser I am, like that I, I'm not the CEO of a Fortune 500 company and there's no way I'm ever going to be because I hate conflict and I hate managing large teams. Yeah. That's <laughs> incompatible with, and so, you know, I had to give myself permission to say, well, you're never going to be a CEO. That's not who you are, but there are other things that you are and take joy in them. So that's what I'm talking about when I say, achieve less permission to achieve less that's so beautiful I just saw um this comedian and she was a woman and she was talking in her reference it was talking about how society says you can do it all you can be a mom you can achieve be you know be the boss babe all those things and she was like she compared it to going to a buffet and she's like that's the most horrible advice every you know it's like going to a buffet and when you eat a buffet you never feel good you with unlimited all you can eat right you don't feel good right. you feel crap and so I thought that was an interesting analogy to it. Now, well, and Aaron, let me say one thing about the buffet. What's yeah. interesting, the buffet is no win. If you eat everything on the buffet, you feel disgusting. If you only try a few things, you wonder, oh, did I miss something better? Right. And that's exactly what, when society is telling us we can be at all, we are eating everything and feeling horrible or we feel horrible because there's a piece of doing it all that we're not doing. So totally. that's, that's such a good point. Now I'm curious in working at financial firms for so many years, 
Is there one thing about money that, you know, is widely talked about or you experienced in traditional finance that you wish the general layperson and the general public knew? That's an interesting question that I've never been asked before. I would say it's a flip side of the same coin. What I've observed is that everybody thinks they should earn more, either in the context of for how hard I'm working, I should be paid more money, or I feel pressure to earn more to keep my family's standard of living up to what I feel pressured to make it. I have almost never met anybody in financial service who's who's like, yeah, I'm very fairly paid. I feel great about it. The flip side is I also have seen more people in financial services simply because our daily craft is dealing with money who have clarity about what it means to live within your means Mm. and to be very pragmatic in understanding that if you're drowning in student loans, which many people who come out of MBA programs and go into finance are, you've come out of school with a mortgage around your neck and buying a home may not be an option until quite a bit further down your path. Mm. And renting a much smaller place than you'd like, driving a two-year-old, you know, buying a two-year-old used car that's got all that depreciation taken out of it, having a couple of good outfits for work, but not a ton. Those may be the steps that you have to take to live within your means so that you can build your way up to financial health. And I see slightly more clarity about that in the side of finance that focuses on financial advice for individuals. The part that focuses on financial advice for corporations, not so much. Mm. So interesting. Manisha, I am so thankful for your time today. And I I just, you're one of the favorite, you're one of my favorite people I've ever, ever interviewed. So thank you. So as you're embarking on this new phase in your life, I will happily become your friend and come to DC and have coffee with you as you're meeting new friendships. I'm putting that down, literally. I'm going to reach out to you. Okay, I would love to. I would love to. And I just want to leave in closing for our audience. If you had to leave people with one piece of advice, understanding that people may be on, as everyone always is, right? Very different paths on their, and stories in their own financial journey. What would be kind of the one thing you wish people got from your message? That the mental framework of financial health plus emotional wealth equals money zen is a practice and not a destination. For example, when I turned in the manuscript for the book, I felt transformed through the research and the stories of other people I had collected and sharing my own story. I felt like I was completely liberated and I took a variety of different action steps to align my life with my values. And then I started marketing the book and the book ended up getting some pretty darn good media. And 
marketing, PR, media, it is addictive. It just, it's like tickling your ego nonstop and you get greedy and you want more and more media mentions. And the next thing I knew, I was falling back into my workaholic behaviors. Thankfully, having this new mental framework, I was able to notice it and readjust what I'm doing. I think about that framework as bumper guards down a freeway. And sometimes you veer in life towards one rail and sometimes towards the other rail. And hopefully most of it, you're driving down the center. But what I want people to know about the book and the framework is that it's a practice and I fall off, I get back on. Everybody will fall off and hopefully everybody will get back on because now you have the encouragement, the support, you know, you're not alone and getting back onto that bike. I love it. Thank you so much for this time. And I would really encourage everyone to listening that's listening, go to amazon.com and you, you can, whether you fall within the financial problem or the money problems, is it money problems and money worries? Money, money yeah. problems or money worries. Yeah. Whether you're in money problems or money worries, uh, Money Zen is fantastic. I think everyone should read it, but there's also um, other books that are listed on there too. So I'll list those in the show notes. And thank you so much for your time. Erin, this was a true delight. Thank you for the wonderful questions. Oh, you're so welcome. And we'll be in touch soon, okay? Excellent. Thanks so much for listening to Manisha. I highly recommend you check out her book, Money Zen. And she also has two other books, one called uh, Getting Financially Naked. And the other one, I believe, is On Her Two Feet. And both of those books are listed in the show notes if you'd like to learn how to read about them. Thanks again for listening. And we'll see you next week. 